holidays, friends. Welcome to the Vital Core Salon. I'm Kara Snyder, your host, or if we were in 18th century France, some might say your salonier. And I am here with the gifts of sonic comfort and conversation and ideas for all the humans out there who don't have time for bullshit or burnout to stop them. Today, I'm talking with Megan Megs Atkinson, who's an enterprise UX designer and a watercolorist. With curiosity and creativity at the core of everything she does, Megan loves to tell stories, make art, solve problems, and improve how humans experience the world around them. She's a fiercely loyal fan of The Good Place, Frank Sinatra, and, little known fact, Baby Carrots. For those of you who want to actually see some of her artwork, you can find a selection at megscostudio.com, so M-E-G-S-C-O-Studio.com. And as friends, Megs and I share a shit ton of nerdy intersections. Whenever I hop off the phone with her, my face literally hurts from smiling. I feel that much joy. I think you'll hear it come through in this episode as we take on forging strong connections with others by listening loudly and operating from a place of raw honesty and rebooting a daily creative practice after yours has been devastated. So yeah, lots of light topics and all over the place. As Megan said in this interview, we, we took a winding path around. But I really, really hope you enjoy it. And I'd be remiss if I didn't remind everyone before we scooted over to the interview to please subscribe to Le Vital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps it grow. And if you want to supercharge that for the holidays, while you're out and about and eating some cookies, drinking some nog, lighting the menorah, like whatever you're doing, share this episode or something that you dug about it with a friend, with a family member, with a coworker. And I'm going to thank you in advance for doing that. I really appreciate it. Voila. Meet Meg Zatkinson. Meg's holy shit. I'm so excited to have you here. <laughs> Welcome to the Vital Core Salon. Thank you. Thank you. I have been looking forward to this day for weeks. I cannot believe I'm here. I'm so excited. I feel like you have been a friend and a mentor for such a very long time. I don't know how it's taken this long to get you here, but we're here now. And we are. I'm pumped. <laughs> I too. also feel like I have no idea where this conversation is going to go and it will be a blast. All bets are off, man. All bets are off. All right. So I'm going to start with a question. You are literally one of the most fiercely creative souls I know, 24 by 7, who stumbled into becoming an enterprise UX designer. How did that happen? Well, um, stumbled is, is a very good way to label uh, my introduction into user experience design. Um, I tend to tell people I tripped and fell square into UX. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was 
not graceful. But essentially, I, I started out uh, really studying political science and economics my first time around, um, and then switching into renewable energy engineering. <laughs> that clearly uh, doesn't relate much to user experience design. Uh, so <laughs> the big trip and fall happened when I was working in the energy e efficiency industry uh, as a program manager running a pilot program for a large uh utility company uh, based out of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I was running a, a pilot program for them for some residential energy efficiency uh, rebate programs. And we decided as a company, the small startup that I worked for, we decided we were going to develop a mobile app uh, to help administer that program and connect our homeowners with our residential contractors. Uh, it was a big leap for our startup, seeing as we had zero uh, development background, zero software background, uh, but it seemed like a really exciting opportunity to connect uh, technology to um, current energy standards and energy efficiency uh, policies that were effective in the state. So uh, we started working on that tablet application. It was specifically for tablets, uh, which might be the weirdest thing I've ever heard of now that I'm full-blown into the software field. Um, but yeah, it was a tablet application <laughs> specifically for energy auditors and, and home performance contractors. After the pilot program ran its course, uh, our company decided to kind of take the skeleton of the app uh, which was essentially an estimating tool for contractors, yank out all the specific utility stuff, the energy efficiency stuff, um, and really just uh, kind of venture into estimating and invoicing for home improvement contractors, the like heating, cooling, fencing, landscaping, you name it. So I, I kind of came into that world with experience with contractors, electrical and mechanical contractors. And then I started working with residential home improvement contractors through the pilot program. I knew the users. I knew what their lives looked like. I knew the, the expletives that their wives would scream at them <laughs> at the end of the day because they weren't running their business right. Um, <laughs> in fact, one of my advertisements that I had designed for, for the contractor app was, um, happy wife, happy life, get job flex today. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there was some copy about like, stop making your wife do your invoicing. <laughs> oh so, my God. So yeah. yeah. I come from a family with a lot of plumbers and construction workers and things like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, you know, I just, I really, I knew contractors, I knew what their, their lives looked like on the clock, off the clock, I knew their struggles, I knew their feast and famine kind of flow throughout their businesses, and I used that knowledge to help design the contractor application and get it out into the market, and... I was doing user experience design for over three years uh, before I had even heard the term UX designer. 
Um, I, we hired a, a new uh, lead developer to bring on to our team. And after a couple of months of working with him, uh, he had turned to me one day and he said, you know, you're the best damn UX designer I've ever worked with. And you're like, a what? <laughs> exactly. I looked at him and I was like, is that some insult that I'm not familiar with? Like, I was so confused. <laughs> so confused. Because he was, we also had like a very playfully insulting type of banter, <laughs> typically, you know. And so I wasn't expecting him to like seriously give me a compliment. And so that's, that's when he told me what his impression of UX design was. And, you know, I, I kind of fell down a rabbit hole the next couple of weeks, kind of researching what is this? You know, for the longest time, I had just been called the director of marketing. Wow. I can't think of a title more incorrect for you. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I mean, I did, I did all of, I handled all of our marketing in addition to user experience design and product management. I mean, we were a startup, so I wore a lot of hats, but, okay. but yeah, I mean, the, the work that lit me up the most was UX design. And after kind of sitting with that title and understanding what it was and, and diving into what UX practices are, um, I took a, a boot camp with uh, your, your favorite um, teaching resource, General Assembly. I took a UX boot camp with them and, and kind of learned about, wow, you know, I've been doing all of these things. I've been doing user research, um, I've been doing contextual interviews. I've been doing the work. I just never had a language for it. Um, and I, I was doing it a little haphazardly, a little uh -huh. gorilla, gorilla <laughs> style, you know, as, as start of life often mandates. But yeah, it just kind of, after about a little over three years is when I realized, oh my goodness, this is what I've been doing for years now. And this is my favorite part of the work that I've been doing and this is my favorite way to contribute to my company and it was kind of the rest was history from there shortly shortly after well within about a year and a half almost two years after that um, I moved on from startup life and now I am an enterprise user experience designer which just means I design at a much larger scale uh, for a much larger company. So I have to ask, because you are not a construction worker or anyone in the trades, yet you were able to really intuitively understand like who these people are at like a really deep level. And I know we've been friends for years now. And like, I, I feel like you just have this way of really, really getting a grasp on who somebody is like in a real way. Where does that come from? Oh, <laughs> where does that come from? I think part of it comes from being raised as an only child. Side note, I'm not an only child. I feel like every time I say that, I have to correct myself. I feel like I'm halfway lying. Um, I do, so, too. <laughs> I do, too. So I have a lot of siblings. I just wasn't raised with any of them. <laughs> um, I have siblings that are much older than me, 20-plus um, years older. So they all had their own families by the time I came around. Um, so I was raised as an only child, um, only kid in the home. And I feel like I spent a lot of time as a kid 
sitting around with grownups <laughs> and listening to stories. <laughs> we spent an amazing amount of time at the Moose Lodge <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I took my first steps there, said my first words there. Like all of my child milestones were probably discovered at at the Lansing Moose Lodge. Um, <laughs> my grandfather was at one point the governor of the Moose Lodge. So we were like Moose Lodge royalty. Uh, my graduation party, from, if my graduation from high school graduation party was at the Moose Lodge, right? So like everything happens at the Moose Lodge. But I spent a ton of time there, you know, just kind of sitting around these round tables with a bunch of old people talking about their experiences and their lives. So I feel like I got a really keen uh, sense for listening and kind of like reading between the lines, um, kind of inferring what people are feeling when they're talking about memories, things like that. Uh, just because I spent a ton of time listening to old people talk about the good old days <laughs> and like <laughs> what it was like working at the Detroit Free Press or what it was like working for Oldsmobile. You know, just, just hearing people share stories and memories. And, you know, when you when you interact with, Older people, a lot of times, they remember a lot of information, but there's a lot of gaps in details, right? Because it's been decades um, since this memory that they're recalling. And so a lot of times you have to fill in the gaps. And and so I think I really took on a sense of like personal responsibility <laughs> to, to really pay attention to where those gaps were and, and try to kind of fill in the gaps from there. Um, so I think that's one part of it. And then the other half is my obsession for context. Um, that kind of stems out of um, having some reading comprehension issues as a kid. And uh, I always had a struggle with the standardized testing around reading um, Writing was no problem, but reading, I had a really hard time uh, grasping the, the information that I was reading. And I won't get into too much detail around, like, the specific challenge, but what I found helped uh, to kind of overcome some of that uh, was honing in on context and really soaking up as much detail as possible. And um, when I had a hard time understanding a main theme or a concept, uh, it would come down to all of the minutia that uh, perhaps other people wouldn't notice um, to kind of draw out those context clues and underst understand underlying themes and connections and emotions uh, that are less overt. So yeah, so I think I, think I just really took... Uh, a very specific interest in connecting dots in a in personal interactions and um, kind of sussing out the juice, the good stuff, um, the stuff that isn't said, uh, the underlying data, uh, kind of pulling it out on my own through context. So were you an inquisitive little kid or were you actually just really quiet and observing oh no I was very loud 
and very inquisitive. Um, (laughs) I am a, what do they call this? Um, A loud listener. (laughs) Wait, what? I think that's what it's called. I can't recall. Um, So I was reading a book. It's actually a book that you recommended for me. But I was reading a book. Look at my reading comprehension then. (laughs) (laughs) And it's about, okay, so like you have, you have the idea of active listening, right? Yep. And there's, there's all the core concepts of active listening. And that's great. Um, I am... I guess I'll call it a loud listener. Uh, When I listen, I ask a lot of clarifying questions. Uh, When I listen, I ask questions and dig deeper. I don't just sit quietly and listen. Um, (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Right? I think you can relate. Just Um, a little bit. Just a smidge. Uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm this loud listener, right? So as a little kid, I'd sit there and, um, you know, I hear one of my grandpa's friends, I'll never forget one of my grandpa's friends talking about his time working at the Detroit Free Press, right? And I would ask him so many questions, the dumbest questions a man could be asked about, like, how is newspaper made? You know, it was just like stuff that wasn't even related to his job, but it was just like general concepts around newspaper. And, um, you know, I would ask a ton of questions and, and, and that guy loved it. He just, he ate it up and, you know, all, all of the, the old folks at the Moose Lodge, they just, they loved having someone ask them questions. And I think that just encouraged my loudness. (laughs) It was like a constructive affirmation that like I'm I'm being a good kid by being loud and asking questions. Yeah, I mean I was yeah, very loud and very inquisitive and I think my fifth grade teacher fifth grade yeah, fifth grade teacher signed my yearbook Dear Miss Chatterbox. Oh, I got <laughs> gifted the little Miss Chatterbox book a lot of times growing yes. up. Yes, that was a, a a very common uh, read on the rotation, uh, for sure. So I imagine you're still a really loud listener, as you say. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I get paid to ask questions now, though. <laughs> so. So does this mean you don't do what I do, where, like, I find someone has some sort of specialized knowledge about something I know nothing about at a party, and then I, like have them trapped in a kitchen somewhere asking them like 200 questions until my husband's like down girl. (laughs) Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. But I also do that at work. Like (laughs) (laughs) I will honestly, like I'll just invite someone for someone who I just barely know. Right. Some often some department, you know, no, here's a good example. So we have um, a new account manager for e-commerce at my company and he's probably been on the job maybe four months and was very tangentially involved in a project that I was leading. And I mean, he was a very kind of distant stakeholder, so to speak. Um, I had never had a direct conversation with him, but after he had been on the job a few months, I was really curious about challenges that he was facing. So I just scheduled some time with him. I just, 30-minute phone call. Let me tell you what IT's up to. 
<laughs> Let me see if we can help. What what problems are you trying to solve? Can I help? Can I help? Can I help? That's all I do. I feel like <laughs> that, that should be my job description is quote unquote, can I help? Because <laughs> I just, I go around asking people what makes their day crappy and how can IT help? Which I imagine in the workplace gets a myriad of responses because are people used to having someone one wanting to help and two just asking like hey so what are your pain points that's hilarious no no nobody's used to it especially coming from an IT department right so we have this big company and I've got folks in um, I work with mostly folks in like sales and marketing and customer service um, orders pricing you know kind of the selling of things, essentially. And they're so not used to hearing from IT. Uh, you know, they're, they're used to like, I'm going to submit a help desk ticket and hopefully someone's going to get back to me. And, you know, we have a UX practice of two. Uh, we have two user experience uh, folks on staff. So uh, we're not a, a large army. So it's, it's not common, right? It's, not common for someone to reach out and say, hey, can I come sit in your department for maybe four hours, maybe sit with a couple different people and just see what they're doing all day and <laughs> what's tough and what's not tough and see if there's any anything we can fix for you? <laughs> like, they think I'm crazy. Um, so do you have to explain to them, like, what UX is? Or do they just think you're a total weirdo inserting herself into like their department? Uh, yes and yes. Yeah, you know, I, I do a lot of work to establish relationships up front. Luckily, I'm embedded within a development team. Um, so anytime someone, like one of our business partners, if they need a new feature added to software or they need something changed because the business processes have changed. Um, you know, they, they work with the development team. And so right from the get-go, I was embedded right into the team. I sit with the team. I attend all of the ceremonies and meetings and workshops. I've focused on developing really good relationships. I don't typically have to explain what user experience design is so much anymore, uh, just because I've, I've been with the company for um, almost three years now. So I feel like I've pretty well saturated the, our business stakeholders. I don't always fully understand, you know, sometimes I've had some stakeholders tell me, oh, well, we don't, we don't have the time or the money to make it pretty. Uh, at which point it takes everything in my power not to jump across the table. So yeah, so they don't, I mean, not everyone fully understands it, but I think they, I've worked with enough of them that they understand how I contribute to their projects. And, um, you know, they, they still think I'm weird. Uh, they still think I'm some weirdo <laughs> that just wants to ask a bunch of questions and come hang out in their cubicles. Uh, but <laughs> I think the relationship's strong enough nowadays uh, that they, they'll go out on a limb. And, and just be like, all right, it's her process. <laughs> <laughs> just let her run the algorithm. <laughs> right. Just let her just let her keep going. And, you know, if she gets in the way, we can send her home. 
So you mentioned the point about establishing relationships up front, and I know you to be one of the most empathetic people I have ever met. And it's, I I feel like, so just so the people listening have just an idea of where this comes from, when I was going through the 10-week immersive where my head felt like it was melting out of one of my ears at any given moment. (laughs) Like, every Monday morning at, like, a scary pre-dawn hour, I had an email from you of, like, oh, you must be at this point in the course, and, like, you must be feeling this, and you are 100% accurate, like, every single time, like, sometimes (laughs) down to the minute. Like, estimating when I was probably in tears, estimating when I was like probably ready to quit. Like you were like a half step ahead of me at every moment. Like that is the level of empathy that I'm talking about. And I don't think that comes from you being a UX designer or you having taken a similar class at General Assembly. It was, you know, the the classes we've take, we took were a little bit different, but like just knowing the process and anticipating like what was going on. I mean, it was funny. We had a teacher in in the course at General Assembly, Vincent, who we would jokingly say like he just had this look that could see through you. And I felt like if you had been looking at me, you would have been seeing through me too. And we had this expression when it felt like too much to be like, Vincent, I need you to get out of my soul now. <laughs> And I think, like, you know, at moments, like, it it could have been like that, like, when I was reading these emails. But it, there was always also so much love baked in. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is a huge way of me asking, like, what do you feel has helped you make successful connections and relationships with people? I've recently spent quite a bit of time kind of reflecting on this uh, as I just wrapped up a, a pretty massive project that I'd been working on for over a year. Um, I'd been leading that project. And, um, you know, so I spent a lot of time thinking about like, what went well with this project? What didn't go well? What do I want to change for the next time? And in that reflective kind of inquiry, that process, I kind of looked a lot at the relationships in that project. I had to establish new relationships with a project manager. I had existing relationships with a quality team. Um, I had some new-ish relationships with business stakeholders that I hadn't really worked with previously. Um, And a, a lot of the successes of that project were people successes. Um, so I did, I did do a lot of soul searching on kind of what I've done to establish some of these really strong relationships in a rather quick manner. What it boils down to is just raw honesty and vulnerability, just shedding kind of all of that protective gear, especially like in the corporate world or in in the professional world in general, whether it's at a big company or a little company or um, even within your own business, your own entrepreneurial efforts, getting rid of the, oh, but what will they think voice in the back of your head and 
just really being honest. And when, you know, when things got a little hairy, I went to my core stakeholder, my product owner. I went to Amy, um, who works in marketing. And, you know, I said, hey, (laughs) this is getting a little hairy here. I'm not exactly sure how to get us through this point. Can we talk, right? Can we talk through this? Can we bounce some ideas around? Saying things like, I don't know, and I'm not sure, uh, really go a long way to kind of establishing trust, that like baseline, right? It's kind of the foundation of any relationship, uh, personal relationships and professional relationships is, is that kind of fundamental trust, And for me, my first step is just always being really, really honest about what I know and what I don't know and what I can do and what I can't do and uh, what I'm fighting for. You know, I recently working on another project with this stakeholder and we needed some additional development resources, some additional developers, humans. <laughs> we need more humans. <laughs> and I got to get away from saying resources when I'm talking about humans. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's corporate Megan coming out right there. And even, um, even user. I'm, I'm still like getting my head around like referring to humans as users too. It's weird, right? It's weird. It is. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so we needed, we needed more developers, right? Like, we weren't going to be able to hit our deadline. Um, we'd had some shakeups and some turnarounds and stuff like that. And I was just super honest. I was like, hey, Amy, we're not going to hit this deadline at the velocity at which we're moving right now, right? Like, it's just not in the cards. We're short on people. We're understaffed right now. So I don't know that this is going to work, <laughs> but this is what I'm going to do. Right. And like, so I was, I was really clear, like I was really super honest about the problem and told her exactly what I was, that I was going to basically campaign on her behalf to get an additional developer to help out. And I was really honest that I didn't know if it was going to work, but that I believed enough in our project that I was going to put, put myself out there and campaign for her so that we could, we could get this done for the company together. And it's just stuff like that that it just really establishes a level of trust that everything else can be built upon. I think that's so important for people to hear. And I guess I also don't want to downplay like how easy it is to like obfuscate and confuse people or just like talk a big ego game of like, oh, I can totally solve your problem. How did you get comfortable with just being so fiercely honest in really uncomfortable conversations? I think a lot of that I picked up in the startup world. I had a very brutally honest boss slash owner of the company and everything was just on the table always. We never shied away from just being honest. It was the only way that we could function. I mean, with under 10 employees and, I mean, we were so startup that, you know, if if we made the wrong call for a new feature release or what we were going to spend the next four months of our lives developing, that could mean people don't get paychecks four months from now. So, I mean, the stakes were really high and 
the only way that we could really make sure that we were always making the most informed decisions at the most critical times was just to lay out your cards. So I think that just kind of transferred with me um, into corporate life. When I first moved into kind of the enterprise level, this big corporate, so I went from less than 10 employees to over 15,000 employees at my new company. So it was a big jump. Um, <laughs> I would say it is a culture shock. Yeah, it was a it was a big jump. So I mean, my my <laughs> I don't know, my first probably like 4 to 6 months, I was like, what who am I in corporate life, <laughs> right? Like I was I was really trying to figure it out and I was I was quite petrified at the balance. My former boss had mentioned, she was like, "Oh, you're going to be fantastic. You're going to be so great there. Like, don't worry about it. You're going to be so great." But you're going to have to watch your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Because, like, you're moving into corporate territory. You can't be as bossy. You can't be as opinionated. And you certainly cannot drop the F-bomb as much as you do here. (laughs) And so I had... I had I had that voice. I had Kim's voice and I had like the first four to six months I was there, right? My new boss, my lovely boss that I still work for today, I was about four months in. He called me into his office for our monthly one-on-one session and we had been talking about some things and he looked at me and he was like, I can tell you're a people pleaser. And every molecule in my body wanted to vomit. Like, I was so horrified, horrified that somebody called me a people pleaser. I have always prided myself on not being a people pleaser and kind of always pushing the status quo. And, you know, if someone's feelings were hurt, you know, I would, I would try to help that person. Um, but I wouldn't bend my ideals or quiet my opinions or shrink myself to make other people feel better. And that was kind of like my idea. That that was my definition of a people pleaser. And I was so offended. I was so deeply (laughs) scarred by this that I left work and called my coach my life coach, the fabulous coach, Jenny, I called her and I'm like, Jenny, have I been lying to myself for the past 30 some years of my life? Oh, no. And I had a full blown like existential crisis over this, right? Did a bunch of soul searching. Come to find out, he only said that because he knows I'm not a people pleaser. And he needed to poke the fire. Like he he hired me to ruffle feathers. He hired me to ruffle feathers because he knows I'm like rebel, renegade, like black ops. We're going to get some stuff done, right? <laughs> he, kn- he, he knew that. He knew that that was like who I am. And then he accused me of being a people pleaser just to set the set a little fire under my ass. Because did he feel like you were you were staying too safely in the box? Like you were playing, yes. like not dropping any F-bombs, like playing yeah. nice in the corporate sandbox. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. He'll occasionally ask me like, 
how much do you care if people like you? And now I know what he's trying to do. And now you know, oh, you need me to just turn the volume up from like seven to nine. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Like, I get it. Okay. Yeah. I need to turn the volume up. But yeah, that's, that's exactly what he was seeing. Right. It was like, I was keeping myself small. I was spending a lot of time being the quiet observer. Um, I wasn't being the loud listener. I wasn't standing up to the idea bullies. (laughs) Like, (laughs) we didn't have people who were actual bullies. Well, Come on, in a company of 15,000 people, (laughs) there's a few bullies there. Of course, of course, there are. But the people that I was working with on a day-to-day basis weren't like real bullies, like the the normal definition of bully, but they were idea bullies, right? Like their ideas could not be opposed. And I wasn't standing up to them. Um, You know, I would give my argument and they would give one back and that would be that uh that's so not my mo um wait i'm gonna pause you here because now i have to hear how do you make inroads with an idea bully surprisingly you stand up to them like it's it's a lot like bullies on the playground you just stand up to them and you back up your claim uh whether it with facts and and data or research, you know, have, have something to support your opinion. And then they don't normally back down right away. But over time, they at least learn to listen. And then your next idea, they're at least primed to listen. And they're not bullying anymore. They may still be stubborn as hell and a pain to deal with. Um, but there's just a little bit of openness, right? There's just like a little crack in the armor. And so it's just, yeah, it's just persistent objection persistence in saying just because it's your idea doesn't mean it's the best idea. Do you find that presenting data helps or does that then make it more of a pissing contest? (laughs) I think it depends. Um, I think it depends on the situation, you know, well, and probably the people too. You know, one of the, one of the idea bullies that I, that I dealt with a lot he was a senior developer, so you know he had he had some cred behind him and and plenty of years of experience. And I was coming in with a rather informal um, experience in UX, and he knew it. And so he'd challenge me left and right. And you know sometimes, you know I would talk about affordances or I would talk about user expectations. You know, and I, I would I kind of go back to heuristic evaluations and, you know, I, I would throw a little bit of weight behind things and, and he would listen. Yeah, other times we would end up with the whole team uh, sarcastically jabbing at one another in Slack, uh, utilizing memes, <laughs> custom generated <laughs> memes of O'Reilly books um <laughs> we would make this one had, I, re, I recall this specific spat for it was about toggles okay toggles <laughs> versus check boxes all right and like you we you earned your ux nerd license plate with this conversation two, two days kara two full days 48 full hours including after work hours <laughs> of custom made 
O'Reilly book covers jabbing back and forth. One that was contributed was called The Toggle Bible. <laughs> I, ha- I have them all saved on my phone. There, there were like nine or ten of them. It was ridiculous. So sometimes it turns into nonsense uh, where you fight with O'Reilly book cover memes. Uh, <laughs> because just someone just doesn't want to listen about why you shouldn't use a checkbox, but instead use a toggle. Um, <laughs> How did you see your way out of the quandary? Was, was it was it listening that got you out of that spec- of the toggle versus checkbox quandary? Yeah, or just in general, like oh, I was going to say in the toggle versus checkbox. I just said, look, I'm the designer. <laughs> I had earned enough street cred with my sarcasm in the O'Reilly book covers that I think they were finally like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Got it. Got it, boss. Like, she's not going to back down easily on this one. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, you know, I think some of it's listening. But gosh, you know, I, I honestly feel like a lot of the cred that I've earned with my developers is not so much about listening. It's about asking more than anything. Tell me more. It's about understanding what their day looks like, what their decision-making process looks like, what challenges they run into. I don't know how to code. Um, I know just enough to customize my WordPress footer, right? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I, 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 can, I can do some hyperlinks in HTML like nobody's business. But beyond that, I don't, I don't know how to code. So I'm not, I'm not a technical resource uh, on this team. But a lot of times in order to facilitate conversation with our stakeholders and understand their needs and, and help drive the conversation to figure out what the best solution is, is going to deliver the outcomes they need. A lot of times I need more technical information. I need developers to weigh in on what's the best way to solve this so that we can manage our stakeholders' expectations of what we're delivering, right? So they could say, I need a button. I need a red button that when I click it, it makes a purple unicorn appear. I have to talk to my developers to understand, hey, can a button do this? If we (laughs) make a purple unicorn appear, does it stay there forever, right? Like I have to understand some of the technical bits so that I can go back and be like, hey, business partner, you know, if we make a button then the unicorn can only be blue. Is that going to work for you? Right? And like try to have those negotiations. And so a lot of the currency that I've been able to kind of uh, curate and and hoard and collect uh, with my development team has been asking questions and saying, yeah, that, I don't understand the words that came out of your mouth. That sounded like English, but can we start over <laughs> and asking for information and, and saying, I don't really understand this. Could you explain how this works? And developing a proficiency in communicating with them. So as you're talking, I'm hearing asking questions, but I'm also hearing seeking understanding, which are two different things. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's asking questions in order to understand, right? I think that's why the questions work, right? So I'm not just asking questions to get answers. 
I'm asking questions to understand. And that makes them feel a part of the conversation with the business stakeholder. It makes them feel valued. And that goes back to developing trust. And I can only imagine that you're an intensely creative question asker uh, in terms of really trying to like crack into something. I also want to ask you about your sense of creativity outside of work, because I know you to be, I would dare say UXing your own creative practice since probably you were a little kid. Can we talk about creativity and how it manifests for you? Yes. Let's talk about creativity. It's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> I feel like my hair is already like starting to like flutter in the wind that just came through <laughs> all the cords and microphones and are blowing it back. Dig in, my friend. Yeah. So creativity is such a favorite topic of mine. Um, I spend a lot of time reading about it. Um, I spend a lot of time analyzing my own creative process. Um like you said, I'm always UXing my creative practice. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, creativity, it has, I feel like a lot of my life, like a big portion of my life has been spent chasing down what is creativity to me. And, you know, as a kid, creativity for me meant artistic, right? Creative equals artistic growing up. Like neither of my parents um, are artistically inclined. Neither of them um, had creative proclivities or creative careers. Hobbies weren't necessarily in creative areas either. Um, there was a lot of bowling and shuffleboard and, and hanging golf. out at the Moose Lodge. Yeah, yeah, right. And hanging out at the Moose Lodge. Um, my mom was um, a state of Michigan employee in like an administrative role. My dad was a firefighter um, and former Marine. And so growing up, you know, they, they kind of ingrained into me creativity um, as being artistic. But even still, as a kid, I was rather artistic. Um, I was just really drawn to drawing. That was my favorite thing in the whole world when I was a kid. I wasn't a particularly imaginative kid. Uh, you know, I wasn't the one, like, coming up with, like, make-believe stories and, and stuff like that. But I was a resourceful kid. And so my when my mom took away my coloring books and my paper at the end of the night so that I would go to bed, I would sneak a pen under the covers and I would draw on my sheets. <laughs> I'm and sure it's what every mom loves. Oh, yeah. She wanted to murder me a lot <laughs> when I was a kid. I would draw on everything, absolutely everything. But I think that phase, I think it was really into beluga whales during the drawing on the sheet phase. Uh, wow. It's a very particular, like, I'm really going to nail this whale. <laughs> <laughs> Super specific, right? I was like, it's an ugly whale. Like, it's got this funny, bulgy head. So, like, if I screw it up, what, it's just going to look more bulgy? <laughs> I don't know. It was a really weird, really weird specific face. But, yeah, like, I used to draw 
there was a kid in my class that always drew Garfield. His name was Paul. I'll never forget. Paul would draw Garfield, and he was super good at it. And Chad would draw Snoopy, and he was really good at it. But I wasn't into, like, cartoon characters. So I found a book on sea creatures, and I've always loved sea creatures. I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was in, like, second grade. Uh, that book taught me how to draw dolphins and whales and specifically the beluga whale. <laughs> and yeah, and I would just, I would draw all over everything. I would try to <laughs> draw objects in a way that it would like form the letter that started the word. Like if I were to draw a B out of beluga whales, like, Oh, got it. Got it. I was always doing weird stuff. Right. Well, there's your, there's your, the nexus of your calligraphy too, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You were already (laughs) beginning to draw letters. Yes. And it all goes back to typography, hand lettering. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so as a kid, it was all about art. And I was, you know, I was big into art all throughout school. My senior year of high school, I think I took two normal classes and all of my other, like all of my elective classes were art classes. I had three or four art classes a day my senior year. And then I got accepted into Kendall College of Art and Design, did the portfolio day. Like I was, I was going to go to school to be a graphic designer. Like that was just it. That didn't happen. Um, I didn't have the funds I needed to go to such an expensive school. And I couldn't get the help uh, from my family because nobody wants to pay for a starving artist, apparently. Um, It was back before computers were like everywhere. I don't know, it was 2002. So, I mean, computers were everywhere. But it was before really like software design and and stuff like that became more commonplace and as a career path and where the average person knew that a graphic designer was a thing right 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 so i didn't take that path i ended up you know political science and economics the first time around renewable energy engineering the second time around and it was really there was one specific event i was doing portrait work um before i got my first energy job uh, while well, I was still in school, it's right before I graduated, and I was a bit of a late bloomer because I worked full time and went to school full time. So, always overachieving. Well, and making ends meet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Paying the bills more than anything. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was, I was working a job that was just really good for me to be working during school because. I didn't have to work overtime and I could do homework in between, um, in between calls. I was working in a call center. I was doing portrait work on commission. And I remember there was one person at work who had commissioned me to do a family portrait. She gave me a four by six fuzzy photograph of her family. And I told her, you know, I'll give it a shot. Um, I don't know how great it's going to turn out because the photo is really fuzzy, so it'll be hard to get a likeness since I can't see a likeness. And, you know, I was young. I didn't take any money up front. I said, no, 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 just let me try it. So I got about halfway through, brought it in, showed her the progress. And she was so brutal. Oh, no. So brutal. Like, this woman was, she was known to be a, bully to begin with she was not a kind 
and gentle person to begin with. Um, but she was so brutal and so mean and just like cut me so deep. Granted, she had not given me a dollar. There was literally nothing wasted on her side of this deal, right? Other and than I, the time it took to send you a photo. To hand it to me, like to physically hand it to me. <laughs> yeah, so um, it was devastating. Uh, I stopped making art for about 10 years. Holy shit. Yeah, it was horrifying. I just didn't. Uh, for the first few years, it was like a conscious effort. And then my career started shifting and picking up. And, you know, I was kind of shifting into the big girl jobs. Um, you know, I finally mm-hmm. I got my first energy job. And then um, after a couple of years there, I went to the startup. And at the startup, it was 60-hour work weeks. And, you know, all you could do is think about work nonstop and, you know, taking phone calls from the boss at 9 p.m. You know, it was, there was no room to create. Yeah, towards the end of my tenure at the startup, I just started coloring. I got into the adult coloring thing. And that was kind of, that was the gateway drug for me. Um, again, you know, having a creative outlet was was still kind of taking form, taking shape in in art. And I love that you started with coloring, right? That it's like this thing, it's like creative. You're using creative tools, but it's not putting like all the pressure on you to do anything more than select a marker versus a pencil versus a crayon. Yeah. I mean, that's all I had the capacity for, right? It's kind of like bowling with bumper bumper guards, right? Oh, 100%. 100%. It was like... The only decisions I needed to make were, does this image best fit colored pencil or marker or glitter gel pen, which is a personal favorite for me for coloring, (laughs) by the way, (laughs) glitter gel pen. I have a 200 pack of them at my desk at the office. Um, (laughs) Just in case. Just in case. Uh, Comes in real handy for birthday cards. But um yeah, I mean, it, that's exactly what it was, right? It was it was low key. Um, I could make some creative decisions. I could get into, you know, my background with color theory, and and you know, I could I could flex a little bit of my artistic muscle, a little bit of my creative muscle, without a huge emotional investment that might go into, you know, portrait work or something along those lines. So, so did you miss it, like while you were on this hiatus? I know, like work got busier and like the time to sort of just daydream about doing artistic things kind of fell away but like it seemed like it was such a big part of like your first two decades and then all of a sudden it was gone for like the better part of 10 years like what was the impact of that I didn't consciously know that I missed it but I knew there was something missing Right. Like I knew, like, I just, I wasn't whole. And, you know, I was single and in a brand new town where I didn't have any family or friends. <laughs> like I just had my coworkers. So I think my, my automatic thought was, I'm just lonely. You know, like, 
I just don't have my people. I don't have my tribe. I think that was kind of like my automatic, but it wasn't until I really started working on a creative practice, like an actual creative practice, dedicating and committing myself to making time for creative bits and pieces in my life. It wasn't until then that I really realized like, oh my God, (laughs) this was the giant hole in my heart. It was interesting. I mean, I had I did a little stint with jewelry making somewhere in that that decade, uh, like a I don't know six month to one year stint of jewelry making. Um, that was fun, but mostly I just did it for gifts. It wasn't like a creative sort of thing. Um, and so when when I actually started, you know, utilizing my creativity and doing it for just for the joy of it, that's when I kind of realized, like, whoa. <laughs> this this is what was missing. This was the slice of the pie that someone stole. And you mentioned dedicating and committing yourself to a creative practice. So I have the unfair advantage because I have like gotten little pieces of what that looks like for you. And it's so unorthodox and so refreshing. <laughs> Like to hear how you balance that with also, as you said, having a big girl job. (laughs) So my definition of creativity kind of trailed off, right? But I think this kind of defining what my creative practice looks like will kind of tie into how creativity is is different for me now, is defined differently for me now, now that I'm back in the swing of things. So when I was coloring, that's when I decided I need to do this every day. I need to take this time every single day. I need to make this a ritual. I need to bake this into the fabric of my day because it was just so nourishing for my brain. I was sleeping better. I was making decisions with more ease. I was less stressed out when things went haywire. Like it was, it was like meditation. It it was literally giving me all the benefits that meditation provides. It kind of is when you go into the research. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And so I said, you know, this has to be, this has to be part of the fabric of of my life, right? It has to be my everyday. So I started doing it every day. And you would not believe the amount of coloring books that one can get through when you spend an hour coloring every day. And so I started like running through all these coloring books and I'm like, I need more coloring books. I need more coloring books. And I just wasn't finding the stuff that I, that I wanted to color. Like everything seemed kind of redundant and flowers and more flowers and more fucking flowers, like just flowers. Everything was very floral or very geometric, right? There was, it was like a huge, that's my wheelhouse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was just this huge boom. And like, so everybody that that could do some illustrative design was doing coloring books. I got a little bored. And so I decided to create a coloring book of my own. And I designed a coloring book of my own. Um, And so like, that's when I realized, so I had stopped coloring quite a bit because I was doodling and drawing uh, for my coloring book, I realized, wait a minute, it's not just the coloring, right? That, that is giving me that meditative, restorative, really like nourishing um, jolt in my life. 
because now I was doing something different. I was doodling, but I was also planning and I was researching and like toying around with ideas and like it, and that then became my daily practice, right? I would spend an hour working on my coloring book every day, working on creating my coloring book every day until it got made. And that's when things started clicking for me that it isn't, it isn't necessarily the making of the art. Um, it isn't necessarily the typical idea of, of creative work. Um, it wasn't necessarily writing or coloring or drawing, right? It was, it was this exploration of what I know to be true versus what the possibilities beyond that might look like. And it was like this adventure. It was the exploration, the like tugging and pulling at what I know to be true and poking and prodding around the what ifs and all of the possibilities. It was that process that lit me up. And that is kind of how I've been able to define creativity for myself. It's not just creating artwork or crafting. Um, you know, it's not just that kind of like a generative artistic uh, endeavor. It's, it's really that exploration. And I think for my creative practice now, I've still been at it daily, but it's evolved. It evolved from designing a coloring book into um, I had a six-month love affair with hand lettering. Um, <laughs> I remember that love affair. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, <laughs> so there was a love affair with a hand lettering. Um, and then I accidentally tripped and fell into watercolor painting. And through watercolor is really where I've done the most uh, refinement of my creative process and my creative practice. Every morning I paint for an hour. I wake up at an unreasonable time in the morning, uh, typically between it's four scary and five. Early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My sweet spot's around 4.30 a.m., take a shower, make some breakfast, eat my breakfast, drink my coffee, and paint for an hour every morning before I go to work. At 6.30, an alarm goes off on my phone, and it tells me brushes down. And <laughs> um, I pack up all of my watercolor stuff for whatever piece that I'm working on. I put it into a bag and you know, once I get dressed and, and out the door, I take my laptop bag and my watercolor bag to work every single day. And I paint almost every day at lunch for half an hour to 45 minutes. Okay. You know, I have like 10 billion questions about this. Yes. Lay it on me. So what is it about the early morning that makes it such a like, a win for you at that hour because I hear that and it like it makes me shudder like I don't even mm. like to talk to people before 10 a.m. yeah um I used to not be a morning person I caught the black plague and was sick uh not literally <laughs> the black plague but metaphorically the black plague um I was sick for like two weeks my sleep schedule is really off this was years ago 
And I just started like accidentally because, you know, sleeping 12 to 16 hours a day when you're terribly sick. Um, I just started waking up at like 4 or 4.30 in the morning on accident. And I was like, hey, let's keep doing this. Uh, let's give let's give being a morning person a shot. And it <laughs> stuck. <laughs> I could like do a load of laundry and wash the dishes before work. It was like, what? Why did I ever try to do this stuff after work? So it was, it was just a weird experiment. But the reason I like painting in the morning is really because my brain isn't soiled yet. Right? So, like, I feel like by the end of the day, like, I feel like my brain's a little bit like a dirty gym sock by the end of the day. Like, it's really sweaty it's sticky it's smelly like it's been really abused and it really just needs a good wash and to be put back in a drawer in the mornings though like my brain is fresh everything is it's still on hold right so I I I don't check my calendar I don't check my email sometimes I might check social media for something specific but most of the time I'm not I'm not checking social media I wouldn't even email you on our Mondays. During <laughs> It was usually during my commute. It was after I got on the train. So that must be after brushes went down, right? It was either right before I painted or right after I painted. So it was either 5.30 or 6.30. Sometimes my brain, I, sometimes I just wake up and I've got thoughts so I can put them down um, for those for those emails for you but yeah so I kind of it's it's untainted right like my brain is still fresh and it's not overloaded by 800 things like it is throughout the day or at the end of the day and so I find it's really great because I can say there's a big problem that I'm trying to solve at work which is kind of what I get paid to do right is and, and I have to sort out all of these different people's needs and how are we going to solve this problem when we've got these constraints? And then you multiply that times six because I've got six different people that I work with on a regular basis and they all have different problems or different areas of focus. And then you toss in that someone on the team is grumpy today. And, you know, so you got to be extra careful about their feelings. And someone took my parking spot and I don't like what they have in the cafe today. Like, Right, you have 800 things all piling up, but in the mornings, it's like I can just, I can, it's a tornado. My brain is a tornado. But in the mornings, I have enough clarity where I can reach into the tornado and I can grab one problem, pull it down, and I can chew on it. And I chew on it while I'm painting. And so it really lets me isolate one thing and not beat it to death (laughs) like think about it on its own right and not pull all the crappy context from the rest of the day it it kind of helps me marinate really on just one item at a time yeah for some people it's the shower for me it's when I walk like Mm -hmm. there's something kinesthetic like when my legs are moving and even like I'm not even going quickly I think I can resonate with what you're saying because it's when I feel like you can just pull one string and not have like this whole like tangled. I always picture like the 
Tupperware that I keep like all of my yarn or like scraps of yarn in where you like go to pull like one piece and like eight half used balls of like (laughs) yarn pop out with it. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like it gives you the appropriate distance yet also diffuse thinking, right? If we're, if we're literally talking Mm -hmm. about like, you know, the neuro aspect of it, like it's diffuse thinking. Like, you're able to sort of chew on it, but without, like, having to, like, chomp and chew really hard, right? Like you're, yeah. Like, you're chewing on a piece of you're wood just kind or something. Of like, yeah, it's like, it's like rolling it around, you know? It's like just rolling it around in your brain and not necessarily, you know, sculpting anything, right? You're not, like, ideas may not take shape or form during that time. But I find that my brain will make new connections and connect new dots during that kind of diffuse thinking period. And I'll often say, hmm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to go paint about that. <laughs> right. Like, because <laughs> talk about like what what are people's reaction when they see you like starting to paint in the middle of your workday? Oh, I have I have groupies. <laughs> I'm serious. Um, yeah. So like it's when I when I started at this company, so we have this big cafe. It's like a cafeteria, but a little bit um, more open and inviting big glass windows. Right. And uh, so I when I when I started at my company, I was coloring and I'd say for about the first six or seven months I was coloring and I just find a comfy seat in a well lit area. And I sat down and I would color. And nobody sat in that spot. So I just started sitting there every day. And then all of a sudden a woman came and she was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was kind of coloring. And she was, she was just kind of like, all right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. She was a little <laughs> grown up by it. But also intrigued because I seemed friendly enough, but also still a little weird. Um, and she said, you know, did you know we have an art committee here? I said, No. We have an art committee. And she hooked me up with the head of the art committee. And then the head of the art committee would come and sit with me every day and watch me color. (laughs) (laughs) And since then, one of her friends, who's a project manager, has joined. And one of her friends, who's a development manager, he has joined. So I have a little posse. Uh, they love to just come and watch me paint. Um, there's random passersby that will come and, and check things out. There are people, I don't even know their names, Kara. Really? I do not know their name. Yeah. They won't even, inter- they'll just be like, what you working on today? And I'll be like, oh, a llama <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> painting, you know. And they'll be like, oh, that's nice. See ya tomorrow or whatever. <laughs> whatever they, they see me. And yeah, it's amazing. But more and more now, I mean, I I sit in this literally the same spot every day. And so people just know to look for me. But I've done a few exhibits in in our cafe. We have a big wall dedicated to, to art exhibits. And my third exhibit is up right now. So I'm getting more and more people stopping by because they see that they see my little artist placard up there and they see oh I think that's the painting lady <laughs> I like you're just the painting lady yeah I'm the painting lady 
who paints at lunch. So do other people bring their own projects or are they just kind of hang out and are they talking to you? Like what's happening? Yeah. So at first they would just hang out and we would chat. Um, but then, then I started the coloring club where we met once a month on Tuesdays and everybody would bring their coloring and I would bring an entire rolly cart filled with markers and pens and books and like a whole, like a legit rolly cart filled uh, with supplies <laughs> for people that didn't have their own supplies. And then coloring club kind of tapered off around the holidays. Um, so we, we had a good probably six month run with coloring club, but then the colors just kind of dispersed. And then I said, ah, yeah, let's do maker's night instead. And so as we started moving out of just coloring, we're doing a maker's night where we have quilters, crocheters, knitters, eye paint. Uh, we have one other person who's experimenting in watercolor right now. Very, very, very new. It's mostly textile art. Okay. But around the holidays, we'll get people who are just coming in to do their crafts, right? Like for Christmas presents and stuff. Yeah. So nowadays, my posse, at least one of them is quilting every day. Wow. While I, while I, while I paint. And then sometimes two of them are quilting while I paint at lunch. So are you still able to think or do you find it disruptive sometimes? Or is it like you expect to do the heavy thinking in the morning and then like the lunchtime session is just like a like an extra dose of relaxation? Yeah, so I'm very I'm a very meticulous planner. Uh, with watercolor, you kind of have to be there's a certain order of operations that has to go on. But yeah, so I, so with my watercolor, I do a lot of planning um, up front with the piece. And what I'll normally do is I'll do, I'll sketch things out at home and I'll put down like the first couple like base layers. And then I get a really good idea of like, okay, this chunk is something that I could handle at lunch. And that's, that's kind of what I'll, what I'll tackle that day. Um, so I kind of save the, the heavy lifting uh, for my morning sessions, for sure. And so I'll just, it, it's all in the design and the planning. Got it. So I need to ask another question, because you said something earlier when you were talking about the morning session that I feel like people listening are going to be like, how does she do that? But you talk about not checking your phone or email or calendar or like social media or any of that stuff until like after you've already been up and doing other stuff for what close to probably a couple hours mm -hmm. how do you do that well I have a do not disturb schedule set on my phone so no notifications will come through from I think it's 8 30 p.m to I think it's 6 it might be 6.30 um, in the morning and no notifications will come through. If someone calls me more than once, it'll come through. Right. But they have to call me more than once. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I also have my phone on battery saver mode all the time. Um, so background apps don't run 
or at least they don't run as frequently. Um, I have push notifications turned off in almost all apps on my phone. So I use a Google Pixel. Um, I'm a Google fangirl. So I use it. I'm on a Pixel 3. Um, and there's an app that I think is another, I think it's available on all Androids. And I think there's an equivalent um, on iPhone, which is called Digital Wellbeing. Yeah, it can like count how many notifications you've received in a day. Um, how much time you spent on your phone, in what applications, all of that. And you can manage app notifications really, really easily in the app. So um, I just turn off notifications in almost every, almost every app. I think I have, let me see, seven apps turned on with notifications. And that's a lot of stuff for work um, and text messages. Wow. Yeah, I feel like I thought I was a pretty... Like, I'm in do not disturb mode most of the time. Like, usually when I schedule oh, calls with people, it's it's an outgoing call. Mm-hmm. And it's scheduled in advance. And like you, I have a lot of notifications turned off. Like, I don't need to see that there's 17 things that, are, that have happened on Facebook. Like, right. it's... I took it off my phone for a long time and then I felt like I put it back on because like with the podcast, it felt like sometimes like I would be at a conference or something and not have my computer with me. And then I wasn't able to just like simply do a post that was supposed to go out at a certain time that you know, right. wasn't scheduled or I needed to respond to in some way. And it was like, sure. I needed that convenience, but like. Yeah, I have a lot of the reminders turned off. Like, I don't need my phone having a conversation with me all the time. Like, it is my device and I am the overlord of my iPhone. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really, I think it's really important. I think it's essential. Um, I've also not, you know, so I had a side hustle while I was working at the startup. I'd say about three years of side hustle. Um, which, you know, you and I have worked together. Mm -hmm. So that sounds weird that I'm telling you. So listeners (laughs) at home, (laughs) I had a side hustle. And, you know, when I was doing uh, brand design and copywriting and and coaching for solopreneurs and do-gooders, I was connected all the time, right? Because that's where... I was making my living. I was constantly at my computer, constantly mm-hmm. at my computer. But after after I, I kind of closed up shop and I, I've just kept my few select VIP clients, I don't find myself at my computer very often. Uh, I, so I think cutting the cord a little bit there as well um, and just keeping a lot of my computer time at work I'll work on my laptop on the weekends to to post paintings on my website to sell or or things like that. But most of the time I work from my phone and I found that I had to turn the notifications off or else I would go to post a picture of a painting that I'd done and I'd fall down an Instagram rabbit hole mm-hmm. because I would have a notification telling me that Amaryllis Henderson just posted a new story and I'm like, oh, I got to go see the funny llamas and pants <laughs> that she painted. Like... I get I get so easily Instagram is my is the worst for me. I get so distracted. Um, I have so to easily. set a timer. Yeah, I have. I have like a timer. if I, I open it, like I need to 
Timers help keep me. It's funny for someone who doesn't wear a watch on my wrist. I have like an insane relationship with time. And like literally I am held together some days by rubber bands and timers. (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant. Um, I don't. So I haven't tried setting a timer for like the amount of time in a single session, but I do have limits and that's in the digital well-being app on the Android. It lets you set certain time limits for different apps. So I've literally set a 30 minute time limit. Oh, so you essentially have a timer. You just don't have to set it every time. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I could do five minutes and then 20 minutes later and then two minutes and then one minute. (laughs) Right. Like, so I can, I can. You figured out how to game it. I can dose myself (laughs) with Instagram. It's so bad, Kara. It's so bad. It is not Um, just you. It is so not just you. But I'm, I'm like, I'm such, I'm such a art junkie on Instagram. Like that's my thing is I follow a million hashtags about watercolor and painting and color palettes. And I follow a a hashtag called swatch and half the time it's makeup swatches, not paint (laughs) swatches. Have I unfollowed it? No, because why not? Why not? They look like paint swatches and they're pretty. It's bad. Oh my. So yeah, so it's just, it's, it's very diligent, like a diligent pursuit of less noise in the morning. Like I've just come to like respect it as a ritual and fiercely protect it from interruption at all costs. Got it. So Meg's. I feel like we could talk for four more years, but now that I realize you get up at an even more insanely early hour than I even knew, (laughs) I guess I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to ask, what do you most want LaVital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? Oh, man. So I I had a really good answer planned for this. (laughs) But we but went you, down such a winding road. And you, and sure you UX'd we, it. You were like, I don't know. Do, is this still the right answer? Based like, on I new information. Is this the optimal amount of value that I can provide <laughs> for the consumer of this podcast? <laughs> what, what is the problem I'm hoping to solve for them today? Uh, I just need to tattoo that on my forehead. What is the problem you're trying to solve? That is not the lesson, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, Listeners things are falling apart here now. don't get the tattoo on your forehead. <laughs> okay, maybe like, maybe the ankle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like for me, it would be, it depends. Like, I can't give anyone a straight answer until I have like an insane amount of context. Yeah. I think what I want listeners to take away from today's conversation, first and foremost, the best way to build trust with other people is to just shed your bullshit, right? Like shed all of those kind of like BS beliefs that are floating around in your head about 
what are they going to think of me? Is this professional enough? <laughs> am I going to seem stupid? You know, am I, am I going to come across as incompetent? Shed all of that. Like, just be real with people. Say, I don't know. Say, I'm not sure. Say, I'm going to try. <laughs> right? Like, just be as truthful and honest as possible. And that, like, creates that fundamental layer of trust that you can build amazing relationships on across the board. So that's one thing, because we talked a lot about that, and I'd like to reinforce that. You got it. The second piece, we'll talk about creativity and creative practice. And so I know it's it can be really difficult with busy lives, with families, kids, spouses, jobs, second jobs, side hustles, school, <laughs> you name it. We pack our lives so full to the brim that we leave very, very, very little time to explore. And that state of exploration is a creative act, right? It's, it's rebelling against the schedule. It's rebelling against your calendar. It's rebelling against what's expected. It's rebelling against plans you've already made. You're breaking the rules to go explore all of the gray area between what we know is true and what the possibilities beyond that truth could be. And by dedicating and truly committing yourself, you don't have to wake up at 4.30 in the morning, but (laughs) thank God, by like really committing to a creative practice, if, if it's daily or if it's weekly, whatever frequency, whatever duration, but you, you create a ritual out of honoring that exploration, whether it's research or a, a book you want to write or um, a problem you want to solve. If it's just a problem in your life that you want to solve, spend some time trying to figure out how to solve it, right? An idea you had that you want to explore or a new skill you want to take on, like spend that time and energy to turn it into a ritual and to like create that sacred space that you protect at all costs because there is no substitution for that commitment. If you want to learn a new skill, you won't gain the craftsmanship or gain the ability as quickly without a creative practice. If you're looking to do a project, you won't finish it as quickly. You'll get distracted. Life will happen. Things will get in the way and excuses will be made. And so if there's anything you're looking to explore the possibility of and and just dive into create that practice create your ritual and fiercely protect it put it on your calendar don't let people schedule over it lock yourself in a room turn off all your notifications turn your phone off completely <laughs> whatever it is that you have to do to to reserve that space and and honor that sense of exploration in yourself do that megan 
You are such an amazing human being and such an inspiration to me personally. And I can't imagine that you're not going to be an inspiration to so many of the people listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me come on here and share all my silly stories and ramble on (laughs) about so many of my little seemingly disconnected passions. Oh, I'm happy to have you here. Every time I leave a conversation with Megs, I feel like my brain got to work out. I hope yours does too in a really positive way. I know this is a time of year where people are like running around like crazy and a couple weeks away from sort of resetting and, and bringing some new and different energy and intentions to a new period, right? Like it's a deep time of reflection. So I hope from this conversation, you got some ideas of things that would be nourishing or ways to connect more deeply with people in your own life, whether that be at work or personal relationships. Really, I just hope you came away inspired and find some little actionable nuggets that you can incorporate into your own life. I know we touched on a bunch of resources. You can find all of those links over at levitalcoresalon.com. So L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. And again, I want to remind you, you can see some of Meg's artwork over at megscostudio.com. So M-E-G-Z-C-O-studio.com. Thank you to producer and husband Craig. Thank you to assistant Darlene Victoria. Thank you, Rishi Deer, Elephant Stone, and the High Dials for the theme song. Podcast friends, I know some of you have been here for 79 episodes since 2016, and some of you are brand new. This might be your very first episode. Whichever the case may be, I am so deeply grateful that you invite me into your life in this asynchronous virtual, on-demand, kooky sort of way. And I want to wish you a happy holidays because this is the last episode of 2019. So this is really important. It's going to be a couple extra weeks until you hear it again. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.